Because I got to tell you the truth, folks. I got to tell you the truth. When it comes to bullshit, big time, major league bullshit, you have to stand in awe. In awe of the all-time champion of false promises and exaggerated claims, religion. No contest. No contest. Religion. Religion easily has the greatest bullshit story ever told. Think about it. Religion has actually convinced people that there's an invisible man living in the sky who watches everything you do every minute of every day. And the invisible man has a special list of 10 things he does not want you to do. And if you do any of these 10 things, he has a special place full of fire and smoke and burning and torture and anguish where he will send you to live and suffer and burn and choke and scream and cry forever and ever till the end of time. But he loves you. He loves you. He loves you and he needs money. He always needs money. He's all-powerful, all-perfect, all-knowing, and all-wise. Somehow, just can't handle money. Religion takes in billions of dollars, they pay no taxes, and they always need a little more. Now, you talk about a good bullshit story. Holy shit. Alrighty then. Welcome back to the show. Rush Limbaugh lost his battle with cancer. I wasn't the biggest fan of his, you know. The older he got, the more racist and sexist he became, but I certainly didn't want to see him die from cancer. I hate hearing anyone dying from that disease. Back in the late 80s, he was on this uh, radio station here in Los Angeles, KFI, in the mornings. And I'd listen to his show. Because I thought he was interesting, uh, said some really off-the-wall shit. I didn't agree with his politics, but I never took him seriously. I just thought some of the things he said were provoking. Eventually, I got tired of all his bullshit, and I moved on to Howard Stern. But right after his show was over, it was Tom Likas, who had another show. This guy had a really big mouth. And got into fights with his listeners all the time. He'd shit on people without even thinking twice. So one week, Limbaugh was broadcasting from the KFI studios here in Los Angeles. And Lycus comes in about 15 minutes before Limbaugh's show is over. And they talk together. So these guys together was something else. Because they disagreed about as much as they agreed. So you never knew what was going to send the other one off. So Limbaugh ends up staying on Lycus' show for the first hour. And it was some of the best radio that I had heard up to then. Turns out they became friends and went to Kings games together, smoked cigars, shared whiskey, dude shit, you know. And I thought that was pretty cool that two guys with opposite opinions on some pretty deep topics 
could still be friendly with one another. And that's what I want to remember about Rush. And like us too, before I realized what a womanizing pig he turned out to be. So I read an interesting story in The Guardian last week, which was followed up by some text from a book that I've been reading. And it set the tone for what I want to discuss on the show today. Religion and how ridiculous it is. Apparently, water had started trickling down a statue of Jesus Christ at a Catholic church in Mumbai earlier this year. And highly religious locals were quick to declare it a miracle. Some people started collecting the holy water and the Church of Our Lady of Velenkani began to promote this place as a site of pilgrimage. So this guy arrives to check it out. He establishes that this was not holy water. It was a result of bad plumbing. And that news went over like a bag of bricks. This guy was accused of blasphemy. He was charged with offenses that carry a three-year prison sentence and eventually starts receiving death threats and had to seek exile in Finland. So now he's calling for European governments to press Delhi into dropping the case. And on the first leg of a tour around EU capitals a couple weeks ago, he warned that India was sacrificing freedom of expression for outdated colonial-era rules about blasphemy. He said, and I quote, There is a huge contradiction in the content of the Indian Constitution, which guarantees freedom of speech and the blasphemy law from 1860 under then-colonial rule. This blasphemy law can affect anyone in India, even a girl, recently, who wrote on Facebook against closing down a city because of the death of a famous local politician. She was prosecuted under the blasphemy law, and another girl who liked her comment on Facebook was also arrested and then charged with blasphemy. Okay, it gets worse. When the state miracle was announced, he, he, this guy goes to Mumbai, he finds the dripping water was due to clogged drainage pipes behind the wall where it stood. He said his exposure of the weeping statue was a contribution to public health in Mumbai. And some of these people were drinking the water, hoping that it would cure ailments. So basically, they mistook the holy water for toilet water. He said this was sewage water seeping through a wall due to faulty plumbing. It posed a health risk to people who were fooled into believing that it was a miracle. I, all I could think after I read this is that, thank God, we have a separation between church and state here. Imagine living in a country where religion dictates your freedoms. Now, we have a few here, you know, the Ten Commandments, thou shall not steal, thou shall not murder. Now, you break those commandments, you're in trouble. But you can covet your neighbor's wife. That's not against the law. You can pray to false gods or idols. That's not against the law. The minute we start using Bible stories to dictate national law, or in this case, make fools out of people for being so goddamn gullible, now we're screwed. So I seem to fall into a pattern. All right, I always have a book that I'm reading on my nightstand next to my bed. Somewhere in between the time I start the book and the time I finish it, 
I'll either discover a new book I'd like to read or have one suggested to me, maybe two. So those go underneath the book I'm currently reading. And somewhere in there, I'll stall in my reading of the current book. So before I know it, I got a stack of four to five books on my nightstand. It's a problem. I get backed up. So I'll get disciplined and I'll finish the current book and then start hammering away at the pile. If I'm lucky, they'll all be page turners and I'll crush the the stack inside of a month. I exhaust myself with this shit and I got to stop. It's a problem. If I was more disciplined, I would just say one book a month tops and that's it. Wouldn't allow myself to buy another book until I've completed what I'm reading. This is a long way for me to tell you that I finished 32 Yolks by Eric Repair, which had been on my reading list for close to a year. If you don't know who Repair is, he's a chef from France who runs Le Bernardin in uh, New York. It's a Michelin star restaurant, specializes in fish. Repair is one of the nicest, kindest chefs. He's got his own show on PBS called Avec Eric, and he was good friends with Bourdain, appeared in at least at least once in every one of Bourdain's various series that he had. In fact, he was in France filming an episode for Parts Unknown when Bourdain took his own life. So that's kind of a heavy cross to bear for him. So Repair is a Buddhist. And I always thought it was kind of weird to see a dude with a heavy French accent from the south of France practicing Buddhism. In his book, which is basically his autobiography, Repair told the story of his childhood, which was both beautiful and tragic. He loved his life in France with his mother and his father, told incredible stories of what it was like to grow up there, eat this amazing food, spending time in, a, in the country fishing and hiking with his dad. Then it all comes crashing down. His father couldn't keep it in his pants. He cheated on his mom. Game over, divorce. So he was raised Catholic. And of course, you know, you're a young boy without a dad. You spend a lot of time with Catholic priests from the church. One of them tried to molest him. And that passage in the book was really hard to read. I was expecting to just to read the worst. He dialogued the conversation just as you imagine one would go when being groomed by one of these seedy cocksuckers. Repair was short and sweet with this creep. He told him, hell no, ran out of there. Balls for a young boy, especially when you understand just how much power the Catholic Church holds over people of faith. So I'm going to read the passage from his book to you, as uncomfortable as it was for me to read, and as comfortable as it might be for you to hear, just to give you an idea of how it went down. If you've heard the stories of adults who've had experiences like this, you'll have a sense of familiarity with it. All the stories are the same. These fuckers play from the same predator's handbook, and it's gross. My grades started to slip, then fail. During recess and study hall, where I spent most of my time, the man I'll call Pierre Damien, the former priest in charge of us during those hours, began paying more attention to me. In the early 1970s, a priest who had been forced to resign was considered defrocked. You were shamed, but not fired. Because the church was very protective of itself and its own. Instead, defrocked priests were simply moved to another post. I would soon learn why Pierre Damien 
had lost his collar. He must have seen how disengaged I'd become from the other boys, so he would often talk to me, staying with me after the other kids had gone back to their dorm. Once I'd told him about how my mother and Hugo had conspired to send me away and wouldn't even come to get me on weekends, he said that he would ask my mother's permission to take me around town when I wasn't back home. She happily arranged to pay him for these outings, which I looked forward to all week. I'd always wanted an older brother, and Pierre Damien, with his American-style clothes and friendly manner, seemed to fit the bill. We'd walk into town to see a movie or go to a flea market and look at old books and toys. We talked about grown-up things, mainly about my parents and their divorce and how much I hated school. I also got to ask them the questions I had about religion. I was puzzled by Catholic rituals and suspicious about origin stories like Adam and Eve. Though mysterious, Pierre Damien was warm and kind and always asked the right questions. He soon got me to open up. I felt like there was at least one person in Perpagon who understood me. Sometimes he'd take me along as he ran errands to the stationery shop or the local market. On Saturdays, there was a flea market adjacent to the school, and I began to accompany him as he shopped and talked to the merchants. A few weeks into our friendship, he took me to a part of town I'd never visited before. He told me to wait in the street for a few minutes while he ran an errand. I watched him go into a store with neon silhouettes and racy photos of curvy women on the curtained window. When he returned to my side five minutes later, he took my hand and walked me back to school. The following weekend, after we'd gone to Saturday Flea Market, Pierre Damien invited me to his room to watch TV. He hung his overcoat on the back of the door. Underneath, he was wearing a cardigan and old work pants, which reminded me of my grandfather. There was barely space in his room for his monk-sized bed. In order to watch the tiny set propped on his desk, we had to sit side by side on Pierre Damien's bed. A few minutes into the show, he turned down the volume. How do you do it with your mom and dad? He asked me. What do you mean? I mean, when they give you kisses and caresses. I froze. They don't give me kisses and caresses. Sure they do. He practically purred the words, and I could feel a wave of panic washing over me. They really don't, I insisted. Pierre Damien turned the volume back up, but he moved closer to me. During a commercial, he began stroking my arm. I stared at the set, pretending to be interested in the shampoo the woman was advertising. He leaned over to kiss my neck, his long hair falling around his face and onto my stomach. My dad doesn't do that, I said, pushing him away. Oh, but you know he'd love to give you that affection. I know for a fact that he'd love to do that to you. Let me show you. No, I was uncomfortable and suddenly angry that Pierre Damien would try to take my father's place or even pretend to know what he was like. You're not my dad, and I don't want you to do that. Leave me alone. I want to get out of here. I got up and left, shutting the door. I was so scared that he would run after me. In my stomach, I could sense that something wrong had just happened, and there was only one person who could help prevent it from happening again. I hurried to the phone booth to call my mother, looking over my shoulder to make sure he wasn't coming. 
I was terrified by what he would do if he caught me. Within moments, my only friend had become my enemy. I don't know how many of you watched the movie Spotlight from around five or six years ago. It won the Academy Award for Best Picture. The film was fantastic. It's about the 2003 Boston Globe report on systemic child abuse in and around Boston by an endless number of Catholic priests. It earned the Spotlight team, which is this group of investigative journalists. Uh, They get the Pulitzer Prize that year. Now you watch that movie and you see just how protected these priests are. It's a license to steal. They get caught or reported. And instead of being banished from the church, they're just moved to a different parish where they do it some more. This is exactly what happened to repair. He went back to his dorm, told his mother what happened. She runs to the church, threatening to kill this motherfucker. And instead of firing the priest, they simply move him somewhere else. God only knows how many little boys that he ended up ruining their lives. In Spotlight, you see how lawyered up the church was all those years. They were going to annihilate the globe if they ran that story. And it took balls for that paper to run that story. It took well over a year for the Spotlight team to get all the necessary proof that they needed before they could run it. And it started a national scandal. Pretty soon, there were tens of thousands of adults coming out of the woodwork to tell their story of being molested by priests in their childhood. Now, this is getting heavier than I intended it to, and I'm sorry. But that story in The Guardian is an example of what's wrong with giving religion that kind of power. And this is what's wrong with faith and putting your life in someone else's hands. When Repair discovered Buddhism, he discovered inner peace, empathy, kindness, solitude. I don't know how many religions that can accomplish that with all the noise that the church makes. It gets in everyone's way. I'm not saying religions are bad because they're not. You have to have some religion. But when you put your faith in the hands of another human being, things can go horribly wrong. I have my own stories. I wasn't molested by ministers or pastors. But I saw some sneaky shit going down in our church in high school while I was in junior high and high school there. And it felt wrong. So I told my mom that I wasn't comfortable. About a year later, we got the news that our youth minister, the same creepy motherfucker who chastised me for not wanting to participate in the boys' choir, found out he'd been fired, stemming from allegations by five boys that he'd performed oral sex on them and forced a few of them to do the same to him. Now, that didn't kill my faith, but it killed my faith in organized religion. Belief in a religion, that's one thing. Belief in humans to do the right thing, that's another. You see, that got heavier than I intended. I'm sorry. Jesus. Uh, Okay, here. Here's something to lighten the mood. You ever go to the internet to look for a recipe? Say you want to make chicken pot pie or something, and you want to know what ingredients you need and how to make it. So you go to Google. You type chicken pot pie recipe. There'll be like a thousand links in the results. And you'll inevitably see, usually at the top, the best chicken pot pie recipe ever or something clickbaity like that. So you click the link. What comes up is this beautiful looking website filled with ads and pop-ups, gorgeous photography, and about 5,000 words of text that you've got to sift through before you get to the actual recipe. It's not only a pain in the ass, it's hard to stomach. 
mommy bloggers, food bloggers who want you to know just how wonderful their childhood was, how wonderful their life is. They'll go on and on about their grandmother, how she made the dough from scratch and what her childhood was like, how great her dog was, how great it smelled when her grandmother was baking this pie. Blah, blah, blah. Get to the fucking recipe, you know? By the time you've scrolled down to the recipe, you're not only exhausted from scrolling and searching, but you've had to kill a few pop-ups that ask you to subscribe to her boring website. This is exactly what food blogging turned into and why I left the game. I went to a food bloggers conference over a decade ago with my friends who were also food bloggers. Now, I never called myself a food blogger. My blog was only there to support my podcast. I was a podcaster, an entertainer, and I provided information. Infotainment, one of my friends said. So I met a lot of bloggers there, and I had never been more annoyed in my life. I even fell into their trap of telling stories on my blog whenever I would post a recipe. Even though I made it engaging, tried to be humorous, peppered it with dick jokes, I was still upset with myself because before I knew it, I'd written like eight to ten paragraphs before I got to the recipe. So this guy posts on Reddit that he's created a tool that allows you to drop the URL of one of these sites into his site and it will spit out just the recipe. Filters out all the useless bullshit that nobody cares about. It's just the recipe.app. And I wish I'd thought of this. It's fantastic. Now, I don't cook from recipes anymore. Just tell me what's in it. Give me the ratios. I'll wing it from there. I like to cook with my senses, instinct, technique, ingredients. I just need to know what's in it. But this is going to be a food blogger killer. And I don't mean to sound mean. All right. But those snotty bitches, they all had it coming. Speaking of recipes, people like to use Alexa for this. Now, for years, I refused to get one of these Amazon Echo Dots or Google Home devices because I was sure there were just magnets that allowed these companies to spy on you and collect really personal data. So last summer, I spent a lot of time with my friends and they all had the Amazon devices. They'd tell it to play music, set a timer, turn the lights down, ask trivia questions, add stuff to the shopping cart, you name it. I was intrigued. It seemed pretty cool. You know, they all had these digital assistants that did things for them. So I did my research, looked into privacy settings and things, and it turns out it, they'd come a long way. You can turn a lot of features off to ensure you're not going to be giving away, you know, the whole farm. So I'm in Best Buy a couple of weeks later, and I walk by the display for these things. Lo and behold, there it was on sale. And when I say on sale, I mean like almost half off. So I said, all right, fuck it. I bought one for upstairs and got one for downstairs. I set them up pretty easy. And now I've got Alexa in my house to keep me company. Plays my favorite music, sets an alarm, sets a timer, gives me my daily briefings, reads the headlines to me in the morning while I'm making my first cup of coffee, lets me know what time the game comes on tonight. What's the alcohol by volume of this beer I'm drinking? I even use it as a Bluetooth speaker when I just want to play music from my phone. It's a great tool. I'm glad to have it. I only have one problem. I can't stand saying, Alexa, stop. It feels rude. I know it's an AI. I know it doesn't have feelings. But I can't say rude things like that to something that's actually helping me and making myself, you know, making my life nicer. I found that Alexa Nevermind 
works. Sounds better. I went and looked this up because I didn't know, you know, what if anyone else had this problem. It turns out a lot of people have this problem. And people get downright nasty with Alexa. Alexa, shove it up your ass. She comes back with, I found several adult bookstores near you. Even Matthew Inman, who does the oatmeal, tweeted about it. He said, sometimes I worry that my neighbors think I'm in an abusive relationship with a woman named Alexa. Guys out there telling her to shut her hole, fuck off, all kinds of nasty stuff. I don't mind making a joke about it, but I could see where that might get you into a little hot water. You know, imagine that's the command you've chosen to get her to stop playing something and you've got company over. Maybe it's a woman you're trying to impress. Your friend's timid wife or uh, worse, someone's mom. You're rifling off this brutally abusive language to a machine. They'll only imagine how you treat a human. Siri, though, she drives me batshit. It works for some things, but not nearly as well as Google Assistant or the Google app. Ask Siri a question, and most likely you'll get, I found this on the web. Thanks, more work for me. If I wanted to read, I'd have just done a, a search, Siri. Worthless bitch. Also, if you say anything remotely close to the word Siri, it triggers her. I'll be watching something on TV. Siri goes off all the time. I didn't understand that. Yeah, no shit. No one's talking to you. See, Siri, I don't mind shit talking to. That's because she's rarely of any use to me. If she was, I probably would have gotten the Echo Dot in the first place. Apple's got to refine that thing or just get rid of it. They make the camera better and better. Siri still can't search the web and recite the information that you need consistently. I read a rumor too, the new phone that they're working on for this fall is going to have a 120 hertz refresh rate, which is like watching your ultra high definition television. You know that where it looks like it's in real life. Imagine that all the time on your phone. So it snowed like crazy last weekend on both coasts. My sister in New York, she got clobbered. My family in Oregon and Washington, they got dusted. So my brother went on a few hikes in the snow, which if you don't know, is a great form of exercise. Hiking in snow and sand requires considerably more effort than regular hiking. So anyway, uh, he sends these gorgeous pictures of the forest covered in snow. He's got the iPhone Pro, you know, it's beautiful. Then he sends these pics of a snowman that he built, complete with a hat, arms and shit. So it reminds me of this comic that I read once. It's this adult, it's like an 18 plus out of the, it's out of the UK. It's an 18 plus adult comic called Viz. I don't know if it's even still in print, but in the 90s, it was really irreverent. It poked fun at celebrities, politicians, everybody. And it was almost all based on current events in the UK. So unless you lived there or were really in tune with what's going on in England, you wouldn't understand half the jokes. But most of the comics were completely relatable, filled with potty humor, dark humor, nothing you'd want to bring to work and sh- you know show to coworkers, people drinking, cursing, fucking. It's, it, was, it was outrageous. But my friend who came from England, he introduces me to it because he knew my sense of humor was pretty dark. And I loved it. I eventually subscribed to the magazine. I saved all my copies in a box somewhere. I don't know. I haven't read them in decades. But in the early to mid-90s, it was, it was the shit. So getting back to the snowman. So I see pictures of my brother's snowman. I instantly think back to one of the first comic strips that I read in Viz. 
and it was called Simon's Snowman, and the strip was filthy. Simon's, this little boy, he builds a snowman and stares at it all day. He talks to it and shit. So that night, he's staring outside of his bedroom window, and he makes a wish that his snowman will come to life and be his friend. So it does. And the snowman takes Simon on a little adventure. Now, you'd think this be like a fairy tale story, right? This is Viz. The snowman takes him out for pints, smokes nonstop, takes the kid to the track, bets on horses, back to the pub for more pints. Then they hit a curry shop around midnight. The snowman steals a car and takes the kid on this wild ride through London, but the snowman's drunk, hits a light post. Next thing you know, the snowman opens the driver's side door, throws up all over the place. Finally, he gets Simon back home. The next morning, thinking it was all a dream, he stares outside his window and sees a snowman having doggy-style sex with a female snowwoman. So he runs to tell his parents about this wild adventure from the previous night, right? He says, you got to come out and say hello to my, Simon, my, my, my new snowman. And the snowman wasn't named Simon. It was just this, whatever he named it. I can't even remember if he named it. Parents go outside, of course. They're going to appease the kid. Snowman's completely melted. Only the hat, the carrot, and the sticks are left. Now, I don't know if I did that, that, that comic justice, but when I read it, I laughed so fucking hard, my stomach hurt. I'd never seen anything like it. Completely juvenile. Spoke to my dirty sense of humor at the time. And obviously left a lasting impression because now I can't look at a snowman without thinking of Simon. Man, we're coming up on a full year since things started shutting down. Can you believe that? The first major thing I remember was the NC2A uh, that canceled March Madness. And that's when I knew it was serious because they need that money. I mean, that's their, that's their, uh, it's the money pit. I thought this thing was serious. Once that happened, that's when you knew it was bad, right? I only remember thinking that if sports got shut down, it was going to be really hard for people like me who live for sports. I remember after 9-11, all sports shut down for about a week. And I remember how much I missed it and how I needed it to get my mind off the horribleness of that day. That was only one week. Last year, once all sports started closing down and hearing how bad the virus was, I wasn't sure if we'd ever get sports back. But here we are, and now the tournament's about a month away. I'm starting to hold my breath. As I'm not sure this is going to go off. Gonzaga and Baylor, they look a little too hard to beat. But this is the tournament. You lose once, you're out. You only have to look to Virginia a few years ago to come back down to earth. They were ranked number one. No one thought they were going to lose. They were favored to win this thing. They lost in the first round. I can't even remember who beat them. And I think Villanova won that year. Interesting thing this year is Duke. They're a mainstay in the tournament. They look to be on the outside looking in. They're so bad. There's a strong chance they don't make it at all. It's funny to me that just a month after the biggest gambling day of the year, Super Bowl, comes this, which lasts weeks. I can imagine how much money gets wagered on this thing. It's crazy. I always fill out a bracket just to pick the winners. But I have not been able to pick a perfect Final Four in, it's been 10 years, I think. I haven't picked the Final Four in 10 years. The last time I picked the winner of the tournament, five years ago. I used to be great at that, now I suck. Hey, I've got a what if for you this week. What if you could see one year into your future? Would you want to do that? 
Someone asked me last month, if I could go back one year into my life, would I do it? I wanted to say yes, but no, because I wouldn't want to live through that pain again. One year into the future? I don't know. Yeah, I could prepare for it. If the news is bad, I could brace myself or get things in order. Maybe make some moves to prevent those bad things from happening. But what if it's good? I could brace for that too. It's all bullshit, of course. Can't do this. These psychics, though, they're full of shit. They'll bilk you out of your money so they could fill your head full of crap about your future. But I always said, if they're so good at their damn jobs, how come so many of them declare bankruptcy or go out of business? And why aren't they, you know, bilking the stock market? You can't see this stuff coming for yourself? I was in college. This crazy bitch friend of my girlfriend at the time wanted to give me a tarot card reading. So there was three cards. One was my past, one was my present, one was my future. She said of my past, you come from some form of royalty. Well, that's a fucking laugh. My family were poor Sicilian immigrants. There was no royalty in the town. I don't even think there was royalty at all back then. They lived on a giant rock in a town that produced sulfur. The whole place smelled like like the entire town had rotten egg farts. My present was something that she couldn't possibly have lied about because she knew my girlfriend, so she got that one right. My future, if I recall, was really dumb. God would grow up to be a captain of industry and work in a tall building somewhere. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that happened. Dumbass. I had to be nice at the time. Look, I still wanted to score with this chick. I'm 20. I knew better than to argue with her friend, but inside my head, I'm like, man, is she full of shit. All right, that's my show for this week. I hope it wasn't a bummer. Thanks again for listening. Music in this episode from Disclosure. If you like the music, discover more on Amazon Music. Until next time, my name is Phil. This has been Inane. Ciao.